Welcome to Duobule. This is Eliza Harvey. And this is Bryce Green. And we are currently sitting in a cafe on Jalan Sudirman in central Jakarta and the sky above us has just turned black. Hitam. Yeah. Hitam. We're back again for our second podcast <laughs> and you're already putting your Indonesian into good use. Kamarin, yesterday we learned about warna colours. Right. And I can tell you that the sky is black and it is about to hujan, rain very heavily. We're in the middle of the wet season and when it rains... You are like, you are drenched within about 20 seconds. Well, we're sitting in a cafe here because we're waiting for our second guest on the Dua Bulle podcast. We're very excited to be back. And as we did in our first podcast, we basically hit up one of our friends to join us. One of my friends, my former boss, Bimanto Swastoyo, who is a 23-year veteran of Agence France Press, the wire service here in Indonesia, the Jakarta Globe newspaper. And, uh, and then later on moved on to Britasatu TV, which is a cable, uh, English cable news channel here in Indonesia, uh, where I was working for a year or so. Has got many, many stories, is a very interesting guy. And, uh, and we thought, why not tap him on the shoulder and see if he's keen to have a chat to us. Bim, can you tell us a bit about where you grew up? Uh, I was born here in Jakarta, uh, and then I left Indonesia, I was one and a half year old. My father's a di- diplomat, so... That's why we went abroad, mostly spent my youth in Europe. Uh, returned home, I was 17, and stayed ever since. So you spent from one and a half to 17 outside of Indonesia? Uh, yeah, except for three years in the 60s until 71, 72. When you arrived home to Jakarta, uh, tell us a bit about the city at that time. Oh. Jakarta was a small village. The only main street was this one, uh, Jalan Tamrin Sudirman. There was only two high-rises. That was Sarina building and there was uh, Hotel Indonesia at the time. That's so it. What, what year? What, what year was this? 60, 64 till 68. And so you're 17 and you've lived in France and you lived in Europe in these big, huge metropolises. Yeah. Did it feel way too small? When I was small, no. I didn't feel it when I was small, when I came back in 65 and 68. But then when I came back again in 72, that was a bit hard because that, I was already on the, my, my second year of high school, what we call SMR here. And that's when you have peer pressure, when you have everybody's questioning you. Uh, if you are rather weird and they say, uh, they will tell you that you're weird and you will feel that they think you're weird. Things like that. And then I went to university. That's even worse because the uh, education system here is a one-way street. And I was used to question things. And every time I question things, it's like my friends would say, ah, oh, I show off. And then my professor would say, ah, this is a rebel because he doesn't want to do uh, the line. And things like that. So you get pressure from that. So that was as a result of education in Europe and you've come back here with a different attitude to learn. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's a different, it's a clash of culture, basically. Uh, you, get, you get to deal with it. I dealt with it, not, not by, uh, by wish, but uh, uh, it just happened. I had my, what I call my midlife crisis at the age of 24. <laughs> but I'm very happy it happens then because uh, it just freed me afterwards. So uh, how did that happen? What, what, what occurred? Because... What happens is, 
in my student days, I was I was continuously trying to uh, comply to the norms, which is you do your prayers, you don't eat pork, you go with your friends, you try to 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 fit as much as possible. When you're a teen, that's that's the main problem. You want to fit in, but all, despite all your efforts, uh, you finally realize that people, your professor, your colleagues, still view them, you as a something strange. As an outsider. An outsider. Even worse, they call me a foreigner, which um, which insults me very much. But um, so there was a clash. There was a time when uh, something sparked it. It was a, a professor who said I was an extremist because I I knew what I wanted. I ask, and and when I disagree, I tell them I disagree. But uh, it was not something accepted in, in university at the time. So this is the seventies in Indonesia. This was yes, the seventies. So. Was that indicative of a, of, a, of a time of fear in Indonesia? Was there a greater need to conform then than at other times? Yeah, there was. There was. Politically, there was. Politically, this was the early years of Suharto, and he was consolidating his power. And we all know Suharto's style is uh, if, you, uh, if you pop up higher than the, the average grass, you get caught. Uh, especially in politics, if you... If you're more prominent than anybody, then you get, it's sure that you will disappear or you will be jailed or whatever. They'll get rid of you. This, this, this mentality of conformity also came down and then seeped into the society in general. You have groupings. I mean, you have to belong to a grouping. You have to have belong to a professional association, which is uh, mandatory. Uh, you have to belong politically. Me, I always believe politics is a personal choice. Uh, nobody should force me to go there. But uh, if, for example, I work as a journalist, I have to be part of the official journalist association, PWE. Uh, I refuse. I got harassed a lot of because of that. But I could stand my ground. And um, for 30 years, I never was a member of PWE. Proudly say that. So you mentioned that you had your, what we'd call now a quarter-life crisis at 24. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened after that? How did that manifest? You, you Obviously you had big thoughts about where your life was going or what you wanted to do. Yes. What was the consequence of that? The consequences is that I took the decision that, look, I've worked so hard to comply, to be like everyone, but it still doesn't work. So I will use the F word. Uh, let it be like that. I mean, I wouldn't care less what people say about me because I would. I am what I am. I cannot change. That's it. So accept me or don't accept me. So I never cared about what people, other people say afterwards. Which is, a, you know, it's easier said than done. For me, for me, that's why I said I was young, and I w- I'm very thankful that it happened in 24 and not at 30 or 40 or 50 even. No, I'm very at peace with myself. Okay, so I have to say that before we did this interview, I did a bit of Googling yes. about you. And Google world. <laughs> I Googled you. Uh, but I also saw that you'd done a number of, like there was some, a story around about a fatwa being put out against uh, homosexuality. Oh, and, uh, you know, your interview sort of said, oh, what a load of nonsense. But I'm interested, can you be openly gay easily in Indonesia now in 2016? Uh, I, I cannot speak about the regions because I have not, have that opportunity to live in the region as a gay, but in the cities, I think yes. I mean, it all come, 
comebacks to you. It's not, you know, the way you act, the way you uh, you interact with other people is is key to acceptance of people. I mean, I live in a I live in a very Muslim street where everybody is Indonesian in the sense that they're Sumatran mostly. I'm not hiding that I live with somebody of the same sex. I'm not hiding that I have a son. Uh, do you think there's a rejection? No. Because when I was small, you. when I was small, my kid was very popular. I mean, like every morning when you when you uh, when I go with him for a walk in the morning, I always go for a walk with the kid. I meet my neighbors. They stop me. We chat. They chat to the kid. And every until now, they always ask, "Where's Arya? What is he doing?" And things like that. So, even my identity got lost because uh, before that, I was Pak Bimanto. My name, Pak, is Mister. Uh, but since my kid was born, I became Bapaknya Bima, eh, Bapaknya Arya, which is the father of Arya. And where's my name? I'm becoming another person. But that's actually what happens, and I think that reflects very much that there's no rejection. I've never had a bad vibes. Uh, in my own neighborhood, for example, in the place where I work. Oh, of course, I work in an environment that is more international in that sense, but I strongly believe that it's the way you act, how you act with other people, with how you deal with problems. I mean, even my own home, I don't have any display of affection with my partner. It's my bedroom. It's a bedroom affair. It's not during, during daytime, we're just as two people. Uh, even more so in public, for example. I don't, I, as much as possible, I prevent, I avoid uh, going to an, to an event together, just not to antagonize people. I mean, like... Uh, do you not resent that sometimes, though? Do you not wish that... Of course you resent you, it. You, yeah. Of course you resent it. But when you weigh things, you think that, look, do I get harassed for that? No. Should I complain about that? No. So why should I make it bitter? Why should I make it uh, difficult? I'm quite happy the way I am now. I'm quite happy the way I live my life now. I'm quite happy how I'm accepted by my environments. Why should I change that? Why should I push? Uh, I keep telling my, my gay friends, it's like, look, when they're holding hands, sometimes they're actually like, you know, putting their head in the shoulders, get out of that. I mean, you want, you complain about being harassed, you have yourself to blame. Because yeah. you're too showy in that sense. Keep it in your private space. Mm. Be, it's like being like, if you fast, somebody who doesn't fast should be, uh, should be mindful not to offend somebody fasting. Vice versa, in my case, I should not offend people that have a completely different style. The, the difference in Indonesia between acceptance and tolerance, is that purely just at a political level when we're talking about issues uh, all around... All the hubris now is political. Yeah. It's mostly political in the sense because they're a lobby that is uh, that has quite a lot of votes, if you want. I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to get mad to the roof just because somebody says something bad. It's okay. They can say that. I mean, I wish I, I only wish that they know somebody who's just just a, a gay person and see how much uh, how much they really. Yeah, I keep finding people that say like, yeah, but you can you can change yourself. I said like, if my mom, my mother at a certain stage 
was saying, but, you know, uh, go with this girl, you know, she's really nice. I mean, like, like, mom, <laughs> I'm going to lie to myself and lie to this girl. Why should I? I mean, I'm going to live somebody, uh, something that, that is not even true for me. And what more for the girl? I mean, she's going to suffer more than I do. So why should I conceal it? And at a family level as well, is this something that um, was... Well, I must say that my father didn't know that. Oh, well, he has a suspicion. He keeps asking me, and I said, I always evade the question. But my mother knew, and uh, she knew, but she didn't give up, <laughs> basically. She kept, like, introducing me to nice girls. <laughs> and I keep saying, like, you're losing your, your time, you know. But she always does that. Oh, like any any mother yeah. would. I, I'm not blaming her. I mean, like I can understand from from my, from her point of view how maybe she's disappointed. Of course, she's disappointed. I mean, she wants she wants a, a a a grandson or a granddaughter, and I'm not giving her any. And I was by my when she dies, I was in my forties already. Were there any women that were disappointed, Bim? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, but most of them become very good friends. <laughs> no, it's true. One of them is well, Elizabeth Masani. Yes. She chased you, didn't she? Yes. <laughs> How long did it take her to, oh, to work so it long. out? <laughs> so did long. She knew that you were gay. She had inkling, but but you didn't tell her. No. Why not? Because I'm me at the at that period of time. When are we talking about? Like what? Like In the eighties. Eighties, okay. Eighties, yeah. I was still. Only open to a very select few. Uh, not a lot of people knew that. But uh, I was saying, like, why should I? I always says, like, well, you'll find out yourself. So when you were at university, what, what were you doing? Where were you studying and living at the time? Uh, I was studying in Bandung. I was studying architecture. Architecture is an environment where you spend a lot of time, a long time with other people. Because you, you draw until late at the night in the studio. Everybody's there. So you, there's a lot of camaraderie at the same time you have also, it's an environment that that just point at you if you're not I was going to say, it doesn't sound like a particularly political environment, was it? Yeah. It's not a political environment, it's a, it's a question of belonging, it's a question of, you know, you have to fit a certain model. You know, you're Indonesian, you should, you're, uh, you should pray, you're Indonesian, you shouldn't eat Bobby, for example, or pork. If you're Indonesian, you don't question things. You just accept whatever is told by your professor, for example. Standing out is not is something that is a, a big no-no at the time. Even now, I can. And you battled with this because of because of the experience that you'd had growing up in Europe. And... In me, in me, I have always been thought that if you don't understand, you better ask. Otherwise, you're losing. How did you go from studying architecture <laughs> to end up working as a journalist? It's a long story. Have you got hours? <laughs> I got plenty Actually, of time. Yes, yeah, yes, we do. Basically, basically, it's totally by chance or by malchance. I don't know. It's uh, I quit my job as an architect. I was working at Tukarang at the airport construction. After quitting, I went to a, a party. I met this guy from AFP, from the French News Agency. He just arrived two days earlier. Everybody has left his office because the previous bus was. So as alone, he was looking for people, and we got to talk. And since I talk French, we got to talk French. And during the whole evening, we were talking 
only to each other. And then after the end, he says, why don't you work with me? Um, I need a journalist. I said, like, look, I'm an architect. What do I know about journalism? Get lost and something like that. And then I forgot about it. And I went to Bali, spent my own money for six months. Uh, after six months, uh, you look at your bank account and you realize that I have to earn some money and not just spend it. So I started looking for a job and nothing was interesting, either in terms of pay or in terms of job. And then I went to another party. My actual boss at the airport left also. So he had a farewell party. He says, oh, yeah, I would appreciate it if you come back and see me. And I said, sure, I'm fine. So I went and flew to Jakarta. No, actually, I used the bus. <laughs> you never have money. I didn't have money. So I went the bus and then went to this party. And then I came to the party. And then the first person that I saw when I entered the room is this guy from AFP. So I said, oh, he offered me a job last time. Let's see if it's still time. So I went there, said, say hi. And then the first question he asked me, have you got a job? And I said, no. So come and see me. <laughs> So began my career with the AFP. I spent what a weekend, which is pretty and a, and a career that lasted how long? 23 years at the AFP. Okay, so this is 84. So when in Indonesia did it start to become obvious that change was occurring, that there was a push for, uh, I don't know, is liberalisation the word here? That, that there were people who wanted to see a different type of Indonesia? Uh, liberalisation, it actually already happened during the last year of Suharto in terms of trade, in terms of economy, but not in terms of political rights. Uh, and, and that reform in that, in that sense only came very fast. Uh, it's a question of a few months. Like uh, in the beginning of uh, 1990, for example, you still... You still say also oh, Harto will last forever. Uh, nothing's going to change much. But in just the space of uh, two months, February, you start hearing about oh, people are actually uh, uh, discontent and they're actually starting to express it, which is novel. Uh, you start to having demonstrations, students, and then it rolls on. And on by May, it was he was already gone. Like, what was the feeling on the ground about the prospect of the end of such an incredible era? Everybody was confused. I mean, <laughs> so was I. I mean, like, I had... Were you scared? I was uh, scared. I was not. Uh, worried, I was. About uh, what? Worried about how things would go on. Because the first worry for me was lawlessness. Uh, we had the, the riots in 98 that follows the... That pre predates the... The actual resignation, but that was violent, and that it could actually reach that stage nationwide. It's not only in Jakarta and Solo; it happened in Cirebon, it happens in Bali. It happens. Uh, it's for me uh, a sign of like something's wrong here. I mean, something is not properly addressed. Uh, but after a while, you revert to your Indonesian mentality where. Actually, people are laughing, people are not afraid, so why should you worry? There's this feelings of, the feeling of euphoria when, 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 when Suharto stepped down. Uh, for me, it was a euphoria just when he stepped down, you know, you're very glad that he's gone. But afterwards, you, have, you start to have doubts, like, what's next? Mm. But for a lot of people, this euphoria continued, and you can feel that. 
and it got translated into actions. It got translated, for example, politically, for example, people didn't bicker among themselves to, to just jostle for power. Actually, they united in the terms of, uh, in terms of difficulties like that. Uh, we came out with uh, five amendments to the Constitution in just a space of, what, a year, two years? Mm. For me, that's yes. a lot. We had the first election under Habibi. Great. And then it just rolled on. And then as time went, you lose your worries and you, you find that, you conclude that actually Indonesian get out of the shit quite often and quite well. So, uh, and that is proven afterwards a lot of times. Crisis, serious crisis, 1998, 2004, 2008. Uh, when Suharto fell, I still remember my, my colleagues in the FP, a lot of them were saying, ha ah, ha ha, Indonesia will go the, the way of Yugoslavia, you know, shattered into small things. It didn't happen. Did we see it? No. Why do you think it didn't happen, though? It's... It's Indonesian, I don't know how to define it, but I find that every time the nation faces a danger, a common danger or a common threat, for example, this sense of group, uh, belonging to a group becomes very strong. And when you say group, when everybody is threatened, then you, the scope is nation. Uh, and I see that. It's this mentality of grouping. It has a bad side, it has a good side too. What was your experience of reporting that period of time, um, like around the time of Sahato's fall? It was constant press conferences after press conference. Everybody was speaking. It was, it was uh, sort of, uh, what is it? Not a relief. It was uh, elated in some way because uh, suddenly, in uh, in the space of just a few weeks, things changed radically. From people doesn't want don't want to be quoted to people like jostling to get your attention and then telling you what they think about something, and this has continued. Now, I'm, I'm when I was with still with the with the media, I, w- I was telling journalists to say that uh, you should be lucky for several times because several things because now you have Google. In the old time, you had to research yourself. You do go library, go for archive do your own clippings. Uh, you have to prepare a lot to just know about the subject. Now you just, at the push of a button, you know basically you have an option of, uh, of answers to your question. Uh, secondly is, in my time, it was so difficult to get people to record it. I mean, a story is only, uh, is only good as long as you can give it a, a very strong backing from mm. somebody saying it. I mean, in terms of yeah. wire stories. Enormous. Yeah. And uh, it was very difficult. Now, you don't even have to call people. People actually call you to tell them what to tell you what they want. Uh, the problem between the old time the old time was searching for the quota for the news was very difficult because people talk indirectly, and then you have to find out. You have to befriend people before they open up and things like that. It's a very tedious process to get a news in the. Uh, Post-reform, it's exactly the opposite. Like the news are there to see, you have to pick it. But it's a problem. Uh, it's a problem of selecting, selecting the news, selecting who is competent enough to speak about the subject because everybody speaks. I mean, 
this is what I criticize a lot. The 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 press is, is it gives a lot of a portion of coverage to very loud people who not only are not competent to speak on the subject but also are not very open to discussion. You you talk about hard hardline groupings, for example. They're very loud. They get very quoted, quoted a lot in the press. And uh, the moderates, where are they? They don't speak. You don't look for them because, because people are talking to you. Why should you bother looking? That's the mentality that is developing now. Let me ask you about um, a bit about the political state of Indonesia today. But having reported a lot of, um, you know, the the Suharto era and the changeover, and and now obviously all the excitement and optimism around President Jokowi. Where do you think where do you think things are at at the moment? It's on the right path. <laughs> it's not necessarily going as fast as you as you want it to, but uh, definitely on the right path. They're starting to open up the investment sectors. That's a huge thing. How how hard is that going to be though to to have because there's still a lot of resistance, isn't there, to that kind of thing? That's why I said. It's on the right path. I'm not saying that it's already good. It's not. It's on the right path. It has done what should have been done, and it will continue to be uh, to uh, to do so. So that's why I'm optimistic about this. And what's your impression of of Jokowi as a as a leader? There's one thing that I uh, that I was proud of is I'm rarely wrong about what I what I think of a person. I usually check out, but. Uh, in Jokowi's place, I was uh, when I first met him, first knew about him. I was really all. Did you him. meet him when he was governor? Or? Yeah, he met him. He came to the office, and I interviewed him. And then it's a, it's a different mindset. It's a, it's totally you. You basically speaking in the same wavelength. I never have that impression when you talk with a, an official. It's always he's an official. I'm somebody else and here you talk like you share the same views you share the same uh, what is it the, values. the approach and values are the same so I really like this guy but I thought in the beginning I was so a bit belittling him in the sense that oh he's really nice guy he will do a lot of things but he's not politically astute as uh, as the other politicians are like he hasn't. He has no experience at the national level, and so I thought like he will get problem there. But turns out he's he's a skillful politician. <laughs> he's a bloody skillful politician. In the space of just over a year, he's managed to turn the table from having a government that is facing like opposition. Sixty percent opposition is big. You can't do anything with that. And nowadays everybody is on his boat except a few. Do you think he always had that in him, or has he learned very quickly how to adapt? No, I think he's uh, he's got a skill because this is not something that you learn in just a few years, man. It's uh, the ability to maneuver, the ability to see what needs to be done, and that's that's not a skill that you learn in one or two years, especially when you're a, a head of state, man. Because there's a lot of people telling you things, uh, conflicting things. I'm sure he's not perfect, but. Let's face it, he's so much better than any other politician we have. 
to what extent is Indonesia big enough for all the various media outlets that exist now, you know, particularly with the coming of the digital world and online publications? I mean, space is there. It's just that uh, the important thing for the media is to be able to move one step before everybody else. I mean, able to recognize where the challenge is and what the future will look like. A lot of the medias are very archaic in the way they, they think. I'm not naming names, but even in the English media, for example, there's not much, not much modern thinking. I mean, television now, television, you say television is the lion's share of the advertisement, for example, but television itself is changing. You don't realize it, but my gorge is my son. He doesn't, he doesn't read newspapers. I have a stack of six newspapers. Every morning I read it. Now they're gone, but he used to have that. My kid would never take one unless there's a nice picture. Uh, How old is he? He's 14 now. But when you talk about him, we t- I talk with him, he knows what's happening. He will question me about something political happening uh, somewhere, some incident. Some... So it doesn't mean that he is not abreast of news, but the way he consumes news is completely different than the way I used to. Me, I consume news, I read the newspaper the first thing in the morning, then I read during the day, I look at online and at television, and that's it. That's a mixture, but the first mainstay is, uh, is print. My son is completely digital. Is he interested in, in Indonesia's past? Or is no. he just looking... Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Uh, unfortunate, but not yet. <laughs> I, w- I certainly wish he would be. But I think you don't have to push. I became interested in Indonesia because they tell me that I'm a foreigner. And that sort of kicked me and says, like, are you better be better informed about your own country than others and I can proudly say that I am. I've gone to places where you don't have electricity, you don't even have a, you have a truck coming in every two days or something like that. This this is Indonesia but through this travel you understand your country much better than anybody who says he's a nationalist and knows better your country than a foreigner. That was a point for me to know my country better, to be able to tell somebody off that, uh, you know, don't tell me I'm a foreigner because I know more than you do, which is basically what happened. So are you optimistic about Indonesia's future? I am always optimistic. (laughs) About everything. (laughs) About everything. But it's been proven. I mean, like, they say Indonesia will fall apart in... In myriads of small. No, I don't regions. mean about the nation state. Like, is it going to stay Indonesia? I mean about progress, about like, you know, oh, your yes. your son's ability to. As a as a teenager now, does he have better prospects than you did as a seventeen year old who arrived back in the sixties? Uh, it's a different set. It's a different set of skills. He doesn't have the... I don't think he has the, the tenacity that we had in the old generation, you know, because we had to look for it. We had to work for it. Uh, we're not... Everything is not at the, uh, at the tip of your fingers, basically. He's at the tip of his finger. And, you know, information is there. He doesn't have to even leave his room to play, which is different. Uh, but, I mean, at the same time, you work to form... A character in your kid and I think I didn't fail in that way so I'm pretty optimistic too that he can deal with whatever problems he will have in the future. Mm-hmm.